when you're cultivating your own body to be your teacher with the help, okay, of the other, of your spouse and with the help of a guru, and the guru over there is not the kind of guru that you see here with flowing robes and lots of garlands and all that kind of shit. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very demanding job to be a, a real guru out there. Um, so they've, it's the body that teaches them basically everything. Through the physical body, they achieve the rest. And they say, they don't say, as above, so below. That's a real simplification in the West of a principle which for them is everything that is in the universe is in the human body. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul welcomes back Anna Reitort, author of Creevda, God Tricks Against the Matrix. Paul continues his conversation with Anna, talking about back to the future of humanity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of mind and body and live their dreams. And now, here is Paul and Enna. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we are on our last of four amazing sessions with Enna Retort. And we have been exploring, I'm sure most of you listening have probably been following the series, but for those of you that haven't, the whole series is based on Enna's book, Krivda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix. It's, it's a fascinating book, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. The more I read of it, the more I want to s- just keep reading it without stopping. And, and as most of you probably know, I'm writing a new book, so I don't have the kind of time I normally devote to reading. But uh, I have read probably now oh several chapters in the book that uh, largely were directed by Anna so that I could be in pace with her. And every single time I read it, I'm just absolutely blown away with the depth of it and the the uh, scholarship and the amount of references and quality information. And Anna's got just such a, a vast understanding of, of things. There's concepts in here. Uh, those of you that have heard me speak about food and and energy and things like that have heard me talk about food as information so i was reading anna's book and i saw her her talking about food as information and i'm like wow this is a a a very evolved concept that she's the only other person i've ever heard relate to food as information in, in all the books i've ever read and uh my reading assignment that i did for our our session today was very very informative so uh, our session today is Back to the Future of Humanity, and Anna's going to share a lot of her experience working with grassroots spirituality, deep tantra, and uh, all the kinds of concepts that I think are, are quite lost in, in, in what we would call religion around the world, but that probably are really, really important for us all to reconnect to. And since Anna's spent so much time really investing herself into these practices, she has a deep personal knowledge of them. So Anna, welcome back. I'm excited to dive into our our last episode. It's been such an amazing journey together. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm really happy to be here, especially as 
Now we can look at the, the other side of the God's coin, basically. You know, we can go into what I like to understand as the real matrix. You know, once again, the word matrix as it is used is a total abuse of um, the primordial feminine that inhabits our planet, our universe, and our bodies, and, um, you know, the reality of everything. So it's, you know, having gone through all the nasty bits, although we may not have gone into, <laughs> you know, we have not gone into all the details, but it's really, it's, it's a joy to come to, well, to this phase, which is, it's about much, much more than hope. It's about, it's about building the certainty in, in the essence of what we are, which is really, I believe, the reason why the gods have been at us so consistently and are now at us in such a huge kind of end times way, right? Could you just clarify, when you're using the term gods, the gods are at us, um, I think it would be helpful if you put some clarity to what exactly are you referring to? Because, you know, as you know, you don't like the God word, but, but it, we've been using it a fair bit. And what I did in my new book is I carefully delineated what God means in different uses. But in my context, a God is a flow of energy and information that we tend to uh, idealize, personifies, uh, put imagery to that is anthropomorphic so we can relate to it. Uh, maybe you could just start by specifically identifying what does it mean when you say the gods are doing such and such? Yeah. So, I mean, the, I, I, you know, I have the, the bits of your book that I've been able to read. I've been happy to notice that you are very specific in terms of qualifying what you mean when you were, when you use the word gods. Now, this has been, it's been a recurrent sort of thread throughout the three previous, epi previous episodes we did. Basically, now, the, the issue with the word God is, well, A, etymologically, we don't know where it comes from. So what is it rooted in? That's, that's a problem in terms of what it's really rooted in. Another problem is that we use the word God that basically we've inherited in the West from Christianity. And we apply it indiscriminately to all sorts of other cultures that A, may not have what we call a God, they may relate only to spirits or a great spirit, like in you know yeah. in native native um, uh, cultures concept. And so we project when we're trying to understand the world, we project a concept that comes to us from our Christian inheritance. We project that on the world, and then we have the big problem of God for the Christians, which has a capital G. Or it's understood by you when you use the word God, you mean it to mean source or something like that, and you put a capital G on it, even though it's not the same capital G God as Christianity. And then we have well, to make I, it. I actually put. And then we have to I make it. I don't put a capital G on it. 
I put a capital G, capital O, capital D to distinguish. Right. Okay. There is nothing behind this concept. There can't be any other God. Capital G, capital O, capital D is the classic religion conundrum. And I clearly distinguish that. And I correlate God with the numeral zero or the symbol zero so that people get right off the bat. There's nothing you can say about this. Because even to become it means you have to die to yourself. So there's no subject-object duality there. So anything you say about it is already wrong. Right. So, I mean, just now you've just explained how much you have to qualify, you how much you have to try to modify the same three-letter word that we also use in the plural or in the singular with a small capital, with, with no capital letter, to apply to everybody else's God or gods. So... It's just a source of huge confusion, and it keeps us, you know, who have been entrained in the particular, you know, modalities and beliefs of the Christian religion with its own abusive history and oppression of humankind, right? So, you know, we've internalized that word, and we use it for all sorts of things. You are very careful about it, and the people who read your book We'll start paying attention to the word because you've put so many qualifications around it. Okay. My problem is I want to take it further. That word is way too dangerous. It's way too charged with too many assumptions. You know, good assumptions, bad assumptions. You know, that's not the point. That thing that you, what you are referring to for me is the unnameable. Yes. And interestingly, prior to. Prior to Christianity, uh, what became Christianity was referred to as the religion with no name. Uh, Right. Christianity started organizing the concept and the reality of religion. Before that, there were these beings who, you know, that author Biglino that we referred to in the very first episode, he has written a whole slew of books that proved that on the basis of the literal Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Yahweh is never called a God. Okay? The word Elohim can be translated retrospectively from our own Christian experience. It can be translated God, but with a small g. It can also mean Lord, Overlord, um, Administrator. It's it's much more. <laughs> I like that. That's more accurate for for. That's what they should call it. The great administrator. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, they were governed. They were colonial. <laughs> the Elohim were colonial governors. Okay, ET or interdimensional with a capacity to physically materialize, and they had all their you know high tech, the high tech seraphim you know and whatnots who were what they call angels, but they were also these high tech interdimensional, semi, you know, um, uh, materializing and dematerializing devices. Okay? Consequently, the word God only starts becoming something in the Christian era. And, you know, the word starts happening in the Anglo-Saxon languages, you know, with Gott in German, pretty late. That's only when the missionaries start converting the, the barbarians in, in different parts of the world, which is why that's another thing. You know, the word, there are so many words that we translate as God 
How can it possibly be that so many different concepts of the transcendent or the high spirit or the great whatever that inhabits everything, how can it be that we translate all that across the globe with just one word? So I have a problem with the confusion. It keeps the confusion alive and thus it keeps a huge potential for cognitive dissonance and thus dissociation inside us. That's the problem. Yeah, you know the other thing too. Most Christians, I've, I, I, I can probably count the number of Christians on one hand in my entire career that actually have any understanding of the origins of Christianity and all the other belief systems that are packed into there. And I'm bringing this up to make a point: Christianity was influenced by Zoroasterism, and Zoroaster broke. God into two gods, the God of dark and the God of light, and they're at war with each other all the time. So you see this polarization very heavily in, t- in through the entire Christian religion, especially in the Old Testament, where it's just dangerously intense. But, uh, you know, I'm only making the point here that, that uh, very few Christians actually study the history of their religion. Many of them believe that the Bible's the inspired word of God and was never changed. And, you know, trying to educate people that are that um, brainwashed is is impossible to do. So uh, my point for bringing that up is that when, when people really understand that source cannot be named and it cannot be known, that any polarization of the light and the dark is to create a duality out of uh, what is really a a complementary opposition, meaning, you know, a a husband and wife might be opposite sex, but they're working in partnership to raise their children, create their life. If, if, If we had husbands and wives that related like the Christian God, there would just be (laughs) blood everywhere, you know? Yeah, and, you know, since you talk of dark and light, what are the most magical, fertile, mystical moments of the 24-hour cycle? Isn't it, you know, dawn and dusk, where the two meet? And the, you know, the horizon of, you know, the earth and the sky, that edge over there, it's the edges between two different things that are the most fertile things in permaculture. Yeah. So anyway, we can we might be going kind of far astray now. Well, that's good. Uh, the edges of things is also in electronics, where where boundaries meet is where a charge develops. So, for example, in the electric universe, they talk about all the cracks in the mountains, and they show that that's where charges accumulate due to flows of plasma. But the reason I bring that up is is that if we separate those things, we don't have any flow of life force energy. Absolutely. We just have a, a, a duality which produces a dichotomy, like how does that function? But because most people don't think they're just brainwashed or programmed, they don't think and ask questions, but it's really the boundary where things come together, where the action is, and that's that's what we call sex, right? That That meeting of boundaries and emerging of energies to create a third that transcends the polarities. And that's where the real um, beauty is. It's, it's, you know, like you said, if, if, if we didn't have these liminal transition periods of morning and evening, then life would be either all light or all dark, and it would be very 
completely, utterly different than it really is. But because we have this complementary interaction between these two qualities, it it's just, you know, the, the whole world is the magic made of the marriage of those two qualities working in harmony. But we've got all these religious ideals of opposition and you against me, your religion against my religion, your God against my God. And so you, you basically keep a kind of a Darwinistic uh, survival of the one who's got the biggest weapon concept going. And, and, and so here we are today, um, right on the edge of destroying ourselves with all these ideas in our head. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so that was, you know, the, does that clarify the my God issue, which I hope is going I to be, so. I hope, I hope many other people take that issue to heart because it creates so much confusion, you know, what is, the, what you call source, I mean, you know, it doesn't have any qualities, any attributes, any names, they, you know, the old, the ancient Indians of India, they were very clear about this. You know, and and they just said, you know, it's that which has no name, or yeah, uh, what do they say? Naughty, 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 not this, not that. Yeah, then I mean, then you can come up with all sorts of aphorisms or whatevers, you know, to to make that concept alive in people's in people's understanding. Okay, but okay, let's let's not confuse it with the word God, especially with the baggage that comes with the God thing in Christianity. The same baggage that has been transferred, as I argue in this book, into the secular religions that people unconsciously live under without understanding that they operate as a religion. Whereas, in fact, now the evolution has come full circle. We are in a system where the god of the technocracy or the transhumanism or whatever you want to call it with all this with all these extremely advanced technologies that, you know, most of us know nothing about. I list some of them in the book. Um, now it's all coming together, and it is operating as a religion, as a cult, actually, a mega global cult. So really, the word God is a very dangerous one in that context. Yes, and when I, when I read your book and you outlined the sort of the structure and the tenets of what makes a religion a religion, the qualities that basically are attributes of religions. I'm reading the, it was like two and a half pages of, you know, this means of organization, thou shalt do this, you know, control drama, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I read every one of them and every single one of them can be applied to exactly what's going on with the whole global reset, the COVID pandemic. I'm like, th this is scientism as a religion, exactly. straight up, because it meets all the qualities that you exactly. listed in there. I'm like, you know, I almost, I almost took photographs of the pages to send to some of my friends, go, you got to see this and think about what's going on in the world. But I realized by the time I took three photographs and sent 10 text messages out, I would still not have time to read the book. So I <laughs> said, I'm going to save this. Well, anyway, now I saved them. you've informed saving them it for a special day. You've informed them right now. You know, you've you've passed the, you've passed the information on orally. So, but okay, great. I mean, if I've managed to make that clear in the book, 
so that people can understand that we are stuck in a religious format that has been programming us for for millennia. And now, you know, we've got the people who are formatted and refuse to be unformatted going one way, (laughs) okay? And then you've got the others who are feeling, realizing that it's not right rationally, but where does it come from in the irrational? The irrational side of it is the religious programming. And, okay, this is where we need to decide We need to discover what it is really to be a human because the other point is why the hell have the gods and the priests and these religions in their different guises been so intent, so consistent at keeping us from our true birthright of who we really are? Why have they so, so exploited us? Why do they slaughter so many kids in so many cruel ways, so many animals in so many cruel ways? Cut all these huge, you know, fantastic trees. What is this thing that they're, you know, this this sort of obsession kind of against us? It has to mean that there's something about us that is a problem for them. Okay? You know, it was interesting, too. Yeah. I was going to say I was listening to uh, a podcast recently that brought up a point they were looking into the history of presidents in the United States and almost a a huge number of them have come from universities like Yale and these intimate secret clubs. But they were talking about how many of them had the skull as their insignia, which is a death cult. And so I'm like, this is wild. I'm reading Anna's book. I'm talking to her about this and all of a sudden I'm listening to this podcast that makes the connection between many of the presidents of the United States actually being part of these cults that are death cults and that have the skull and crossbones as their symbols. I'm like, that's just too sickening. (laughs) Well, it's also, it's a symbol of pirates, you know? Yes, exactly. And, and I mean, Paul, you are spot on when you say that it's a death cult, but I would like to qualify this. There is natural life and natural death. And they are creating, they want to create terraform and modify the humans and modify everything with their CRISPR and all that stuff. They are trying to create unnatural life, like they have generated unnatural dark and unnatural light. It's a matter of unnatural life at the price of unnatural death imposed on everything that lives okay the whole business of human sacrifice animal sacrifice this is unnatural death these are further concepts that it's really it's really useful to grasp not just concepts realities yeah you know what what comes to my mind i actually had a vision while you were saying that and and what comes to my mind is because we have spoken a lot about, and it's this is spoken by a lot of experts too, and that is the harvesting of human energy, particularly our emotional energy. And as you've described, how they're invested in keeping us in a state of fear. So the vision that I had was controlling a fire. Naturally, people die. But what's happening with all this technology is it's as though they're trying to control the rate at which we die because death produces energy rotting produces energy if you stick a thermometer in a compost pile you'll see that's very hot in there and it reaches peak heat at 141 or 142 degrees 
and compost piles actually catch on fire spontaneously. The point I'm making is there's a lot of energy produced by death. And one of the concepts that came to me is I could see that it looks to me from an esoteric and physiological perspective that they're trying to use technology to control the rate of death because they can control the rate of energy that way. Could be, could be. I'm, you know, I'm not in their heads, but, you know, it could be. Hello, everybody. If exercise is something important to you that you are sure not to miss a day of, it's important to remember that you don't get stronger in the gym, you get stronger when you rest. If you have a hard time committing yourself to exercising enough to keep yourself fit and healthy, then learning how to do it quickly and effectively is where the magic is. There's a fine line between being in the gym and overtraining and not doing enough to keep yourself fit, but there's always a sweet spot that brings you into balance, contributing to harmony in your life. If your goal is to be your fittest while being highly efficient with your time so you can engage other important aspects of your life and produce well-being, then I've written an ebook just for you, Paul Check's Big Bang Workouts. In the book, I will teach you my Big Bang approach to fitness. You will learn what makes something a Big Bang exercise so you can identify them or even create them for yourself, how to perform some of my simple but powerful Big Bang exercises. I offer three specific Big Bang workouts, simple program design techniques you can create your own Big Bang workouts with, two important rules for maximizing your workout results that apply to everyone from novice exercises to the world's best professional athletes. If you put all the information I share in Paul Check's Big Bang workouts to work in your life, you will get fitter, you'll have more energy, and you'll have more time to work in, do some art, and spend time with your loved ones. All the things that make a complete, healthy, happy human being. Get your copy of the ebook for free now at chekinstitute.com forward slash big bang. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash big bang. Enjoy Paul Check's Big Bang Workouts. You'll never feel better. Now they're technologizing the overall sacrifice of life. And it really is, you know, it's animal sacrifice, uh, planetary sacrifice, and human sacrifice. People really need to get, they need to come to terms with that and, you know, to be able to, and, you know, people may need to grieve. It's, it, this is good grieving. If they can realize... I grieve every day over I it. grieve every day. Those people who are not, who are, who think they are awake and who are not yet grieving aren't there yet. But, you know, they'll get there. And, um, but this comes to the point that, <laughs> you know, basically there is something about us that is so necessary to the gods that they do not have and that they are trying to capture for their own purposes They've used whatever, you know, they've used sacrifice and all sorts of modalities. And now it's all coming to a, well, you know, what you could call an end times event, um, according to their program. Um, it's their, it's their end game. It's their end game. And we need to be aware of the end game and we need to become aware of who we really are. And so, you know, this is, we need to bring the body, the spirit, and the soul together again. We've been dissociated. We need to become integral again. I would take it a step further than... Um, than integral? Yeah, the integral by, by, by the American philosopher. 
You reference him all the time. Damn it. American what? The philosopher. Gene oh, Gebser? No, 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 no. Ken Wilber? Wilber, Wilber. That's right, Ken Wilber. You know, his concept of the integral human, it doesn't have that much of the esoteric in it, the natural esoteric of humans, okay? You know, I've had the, as I say, challenging privilege of spending a lot of time with these grassroots people who, like all grassroots people, illiterates, tend to hold on to the, the essence of traditions much longer than the educated. You know, um, the great esotericist from France, uh, René Guénon, was very clear about this. You know, I mean, he was really a very, very erudite esotericist, but he acknowledged that it was in the peoples, in the lowly peoples, that the essence of pure traditions survived the longest. And so I've been able to go and catch the last breadcrumbs in one such tradition, while I also witnessed its, uh, its being defeated by the advent of the god of money. You know, they had survived all the colonial repressions and all sorts of, you know, stuff that had happened over the centuries. But they, you know, when suddenly they were the ones who, you know, I heard the term god of money from them. They said, but, you know, but, but we don't understand. How come? Suddenly, now the real God is the God of money. You know, we were worshipping, you know, Vishnu, Shiva, Allah, whatever. But it's not those anymore. It's money that's the God now. And so, you know, this is a small utterance of theirs and their bewilderment, their complete, I mean, you know, the cognitive and the emotional dissonance that hit these people was just off. And they couldn't deal with it because they don't understand money. So that's one element of you know what came back to me when I really felt the need to write this book last year. And so um, these people gave me what you would call tenets of what truly is a human path. Now, they gave it to me, of course, in the model that applies to them, grassroots people living in Bengal with the particular traditions and the climate and the, you know, the food, the everything that goes with that particular place. And so it's obvious that, you know, the, 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 I've had to process it to be able to make it mine as something that can be applicable beyond the confines of where those people live. And when they were telling me these things, they were saying, one day, because our path is universal, it's the path of humans. Because this path is universal, you will be teaching people outside, you know, away from here. And I thought, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> I'm just the anthropologist <laughs> learning stuff. Well, I realized, you know, having written the the the, the 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 crappy side of the book, I realized, well, of course, I mean, you know, what these people gave me, it suddenly comes into very sharp relief as being applicable, the, ba the major principles as being operational principles in the flesh are a natural esoteric for humans. And so, you know, that's what I would like, that's what I share in the book. Um, I think I should be writing 
a more expansive book on this later on. Uh, but you know, I could I could summarize some of the main points here. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Um, there's things I read in there that I'll wait for the right moment to talk about. But uh, uh, I I love all this stuff. I really love learning about other uh, cultures, and especially the more ancient, uh, authentic practices and and, and systems. So um, fire away. Okay, so these people call themselves they're the the fakir. Okay, they are the so-called Muslim side of a um, grassroots tantric tradition that exists only in Bengal. And I went to the Muslim side because the Hindu side had already been largely, let's say, contaminated by, uh, well, new age people who visited them and it was all sort of fluffy, hunky-dory. But, uh, you know, I saw the underbelly of that. And uh, I decided, um, no, I'm going to go to the Muslim side where very, very few foreigners have been. And, you know, that's where I really got some, uh, you know, I got really, really authentic teachings and just exposure, just living with these people, living in their poverty, the material poverty, but the wealth, you know, in terms of a deep culture a deep human culture, the the joy that these people had when they shared around these esoteric principles of, the, uh, of their culture. And um, so I imbibed it on the so-called Muslim side, but it's all very syncretic. These people are the edge of Sufism. Okay, Sufism is already the heterodoxy of Islam. Tantra is the heterodoxy of so-called Hinduism. Now, these people are at the edge of those and you can feel the substrate of, you know, indigenous, indi- indigenous traditions that that have been subsumed in that in that mix. Um, I call them tantric, but they don't call themselves tantra because they are non-ritualistic. They don't believe in any kind of ritual. They believe that the natural esoteric of life has to be applied in ordinary daily life, when you're cooking or plowing the fields, as well as in your so-called esoteric practices. It's all together. They don't dissociate anything, which is so very powerful. You know, we sit on a meditation mat, mat, and then we have to make an effort to bring the meditative quality into, you know, doing the dishes or, or, or you know, planting onions or whatever it is. So these people... You, can I ask a quick question? Sure. Have have you st- have you studied Kabir at all? Yeah, he's he is part of. I mean, that tradition was actually a whole continuum that existed across the whole of northern India of basically grassroots and artisans, uh, matter of fact, devotional connection to the self. Because Kabir was was very against uh, separating your work life. He really felt going off and meditating in caves was copping out. He said, if you can't be a practicing yogi in your house, in your work, uh, that you didn't understand it and you were just evading the responsibility of true spiritual growth. Exactly. The fakirs say the same thing. He was half half Muslim and half Hindu, so he got it from both sides. Exactly. So he is, he is, 
but he lived in Benares, okay, that's sort of northern central India. But it was this continuum that existed. There were many other, you know, people who had the same kind of inspiration. That's, you know, around the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, which were a golden age of, let's say, folk mysticism, uh, embodied folk mysticism, as opposed to rarefied, you know, um, rarefied transcendent mysticism. You know, these people bring the magic of life is there at every in every moment. And so for the fakir, yes, the, well, they call it the path of the householder, which is better than the path of the, of the renunciant. It's much harder. You know, you're having a fight with your wife or your husband, and still you have to be, you know, rooted in, in that, in that other, in that other stuff. And the fight will extinguish itself by that, by virtue of, of that. So, yeah, very much so. And this has to do with living in the body, as opposed to the renunciants who emaciate their body, who mortify their body. Okay. These people, you have to feed yourself properly. You have to sleep properly. You have to do all the right things properly, but you add the es natural esoteric edge to this in terms of living in your body as both this physical, the tangible thing and the subtle body, which you know, the, the more erudite Indian traditions will give you the etheric body, the astral body, the causal body. and the, For these people, you're not going to make those separations. You don't need it. The subtle body is everything that is in constant communication with the physical body so that your greater self or your inner self can do its deeds in this world through this physical body because without the physical body it wouldn't be possible. And this is the reason why, or it's one major reason why, so they say, the gods envy us humans. The gods who have everything, every power, they are envious of us because we have this incarnation that brings us, it brings the the other worlds, the other dimensions, into a vessel that is capable of communicating between between the 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 three D, the, the physical, so so that things make are made manifest, and this is what creates evolution. Okay, so these people, what is interesting, these people make you know, the word soul, atman, they hardly ever use it. Soul, spirit, subtle body, for them, this is just one totality. And they apply themselves through their esoteric practices to more and more integrating the interdimensional part of that, the subtle, what they call the subtle body, integrating it into the physical body, which ripens the physical body, makes your raw clay, the raw clay of your physical pot, into a well-baked clay pot that will be much stronger and which will be able to contain the energies of, of, the, of the subtle body, which is in communication with the energies of the subtle body of your consort, your husband or your wife. And through that, you are in communication. They don't talk so much about the universe, but they are in communication with... Prakriti and Purush, 
the male, the masculine principle and the feminine principle. So the mask, the feminine principle is the bedrock of everything they do. The feminine principle is earth, nature, female animal, woman. And so for them, you know, the woman with whom the guy lives is is the prime teacher it's the nurturer it's the giver of life it's the it's the it's more than the foundation of everything for them a man cannot achieve the goal of uniting the subtle body and the physical body effectively without the feminine as as it's a kind of you know, I could say crucible, I could say educator, I could say, I mean, the functions that they attribute to the feminine are just, you know, all over the map. And they don't emphasize the masculine principle other than in terms of achieving the, uh, the embodied experiential knowledge of what Mahapurush is that masculine principle. So the idea is to go from your embodied female and, and, uh, and male body into achieving the knowledge of the principles and of merging them. So that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's, that's how they operate. That's the, that's what you could call, you know, one aspect, one tantric aspect of, of, of what they're doing. Um, everything is centered in the body. These people believe utterly in the body and they practice the body as the place where they learn everything. They learn everything about the subtle body from the physical body. They use the senses as a material subtle essence that they can refine. The main thing that you refine is those emotions. You get over the fear, you cultivate love, devotion, uh, fortitude, etc., etc. You get over fear, anger, infatuation. The big, for them, sins are those emotions that hold you back. But everything is cultivated in the body as it relates to the emotions and to the feelings. The body is also where they find their own clinic, their own medicine chest. The really most um, strict, authentic fakir people will not take a single pill from anywhere. And they may never need even herbs. Because as they practice what they do, the substances of the body become ever more refined. And so these people are great experts at using urine. I'm not going to talk about other stuff that they do because it's too much out there. And some of it is really still secret. But the urine thing is known by some people in the West to work very, very well. I have cured out there. You know, when I was out there in their villages and I had I had access to nothing and I had the weirdest diseases that I would later show to, you know, official doctors and they didn't know what the hell it was. But all these diseases I've cured with, you know, my urine. So that's... The idea is that this is an extremely self-contained and self-empowering path where when you're cultivating your own body to be your teacher, 
with the help, okay, of the other, of your spouse, and with the help of a guru, and the guru over there is not the kind of guru that you see here with flowing robes and lots of garlands and all that kind of shit. It's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very demanding job to be a, a real guru out there. Um, so they've, it's the body that teaches them basically everything. Through the physical body, they achieve the rest. And they say, they don't say, as above, so below. That's a real simplification in the West of a principle which for them is everything that is in the universe is in the human body. Everything that is in the universe is in the human body. So, I mean, if you consider that, that's pretty gigantic. You know, I'll, I'll leave people to, you know, people can sort of chew on that. Um, what else should I say? I, I think it has to be that way. I mean, if you study astrophysics, astronomy, astrology, quantum physics, you know, without going on a long dissertation, I, I, I don't think you can really study those sciences very long before you come to the realization that the holographic concept of the universe, which is very thorough, and, and David Bohm did tremendous work on this, but the whole holographic concept is that any piece of the image you're projecting to a hologram carries the whole in it. And at every, literally every point in space, the whole of the universe is represented. So, you know, you know my urge would be to, to give a long explanation, but I, I, I don't, my only point is that if you really study the available sciences, and though very few of them will say this, but when you start putting all the pieces together, you say, well, th there's my mind, there's my emotions, there's my bones, there's my muscles, there's my, the water in me, for example. You know, people that don't know any better think that water is only on Earth. But current research in astronomy uh, and astrophysics shows that water is everywhere in the universe, absolutely everywhere. So there's just one example that that of what you're saying. Uh, yeah, but but personally, Paul, having investigated, I know it's true. Right, but I mean, you know that, and just realize the amount of scientific research that comes to those conclusions. And contrast that with the fact that those illiterate people have been knowing that. They've been knowing that naturally. They, I mean, these fakir people, they are the, the end of a long line that goes back, you know, back in, you know, to time immemorial. We don't know where, how far back in time it goes, but that they've been holding that knowledge. Okay. And that certainty and that through their body, they could achieve the universe. As illiterate peasants at the bottom of society, I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. And when you learn it from an illiterate person who knows it not intellectually but experientially, it carries a different charge. You know, I'm, I don't have the same scientific mind as you. And so, you know, this kind of truth had to come to me from those, you know, illiterate people. Uh, but 
I can tell you that, you know, it has, once I received that charge, it was, boom, you know, it has stayed with me ever since. You can never forget it when, when you, when it's delivered to you from people who know it to be true, not intellectually, but experientially and esoterically. So, you know, this is where we're dealing with, in the West, we constantly need to seek validation for, you know, the results of meditative practices, brainwaves and things like that. And, you know, esoteric new truths that have been known in the East, we need to seek validation for those in science. Otherwise, we're not going to believe it. Um, great. You know, that's that's fine. But considering the 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 amount the time the resources necessary for scientific research for the common man and woman such as me i'm not you know i don't have the knowledge in sciences that you have i don't have that kind of mind um my path will move faster if i can get it experientially and i can experience it in my own life in my own body and it activates my own abilities and powers to do something in the world and manifest something that you know is worthwhile of service to the evolution of 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 the greater you know whole around me well you know then <laughs> i like that and that's what i would like to share with the many people who don't have the same scientific mind as uh, you know as master check Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I've got something great to share with you. I think you've all heard plenty in the news about zinc, but what you haven't heard about is Symbiotica's amazing new zinc complex, which is all organic and a unique formulation. And so because Sherveen's the expert and the formulator and the founder of Symbiotica, I brought him in to tell us about the zinc complex and when we know we should use it because of the symptoms we're having. So, Shervin, how do we know we need this complex? You know, zinc, I'm a mineral guy. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> it's Thank like, God. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. I mean, minerals are the root foundation of thought, emotion, and we're actually being present in the physical body. Without minerals, nothing can happen. Vitamins can't operate. Functions in the body can't happen. Hormones can't be made. You know, minerals are everything. And zinc in particular is very unique. I mean, think about it. They dip steel in zinc to keep it from corroding and rusting. That's called yeah. galvanization, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just think about what it's doing in the body. Zinc acts as a super antioxidant in the body from top to bottom. Yeah. If you're deficient in zinc, most likely you have low libido, mm -hmm. low energy, depression. You're not motivated. You might have flaky skin. Mm. You're probably not sleeping well. You're probably not metabolizing well. Zinc is so profound in the human body that it crosses almost every barrier in the body. What do I mean by that? It's in your saliva. Yeah. It's in your snot. Mm -hmm. It's in your piss. Yeah. It's in your sweat. It's everywhere. And why is that? Because the, our bodies are designed to operate with good zinc in the body. So mm. this formula is powerful. The results that we're having, the testimonials we're having, and just take it from me, this might be the most powerful formula we have at Symbiotica, and that's saying a lot. We have three forms of zinc in here. Two of them are trademarked. We also have two forms of copper in here. Copper and zinc might displace each other. That's why we have to have the perfect ratios in there. Uh -huh. And then we also have selenium in there, mm. which creates the trifecta of these three critical minerals that we're not getting in our foods. Most people aren't eating oysters every day. Mm. And sometimes you just want to be able to reach in your cabinet and grab one little capsule 
I highly recommend eating this with your largest meal of the day mm. because it's that strong until your body acclimates to it. I'm very, very happy about how this turned out and the results that it's having for both men and women. Excellent. You know, I know that uh, selenium deficiency is linked to uh, heart heart problems, holes in the hearts, heart valve dysfunction. Cancers, yeah, diabetes. Uh, New Zealand has a d- deficiency of selenium in their soil, and they were having a lot of problems with heart problems in the sheep there. Yep. And they tracked it to selenium deficiency, and I've also known of people that needed selenium to heal their heart. So what a great combination. So if you want to get your zinc complex, go to symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And as a Living 4D listener, use the code CHECK15 on checkout and get 15% off your zinc complex and any of Symbiotica's amazing products. So enjoy and please take care of yourself. We all need to get our hands together and make the world a better place right now. So if your zinc complex and your Symbiotica products help us do that, then that's a worthy investment. Lots of love. I've only use science as a means of explaining what I've experienced through my own mystical experiences. And I only use the science because as a teacher, I have to access the minds of people that I'm teaching and I'm teaching in a Western culture. But if you study all the great scientists, I mean, from uh, Heisenberg to um, uh Wolfgang Pauli to, uh, you know, with a whole list of them, they all were studying Eastern metaphysics because they realized that in Eastern spiritual traditions and metaphysics were the concepts that they were exploring. And many of them said over and over again, we're only uh, putting objective quantification to what has been known for thousands of years they they the the real scientists knew that they were just following a thread in fact i think it was john wheeler that said any time now i expect to find a rishi sitting at the end of one of my mathematical equations why because he knew these guys sitting in caves meditating and hoeing fields already knew what he was researching at a very deep level. Yeah, yeah. But once again, the effort, well, it's a different kind of effort. Let's say it's a different kind of meditation, you know, that the high physicists, the really sort of leading edge experts, they reach that frontier where the quantitative has to fall over the precipice into the subtle, the qualitative, the unspeakable, you know, things like that. Those things can also be accessed through the heart. You know, the great meditators are people who have accessed stuff through the field of the heart. So that's another big topic that that we need to come to. Um, the other thing is, when you've got these kind of huge truths that are encapsulated in a small sentence delivered by somebody who really knows it, not up here, but here and in their bodies, it delivers It delivers a charge. It delivers a spark that awakens something in the heart, mind, body of the person who is ready to receive it. Yeah? So, and we are now at a time 
when many, many people are cracked open, they are ready to receive these things. And we don't have time now to spend 10 years, 20 years sitting in meditation and achieving, you know, those states of consciousness. We don't have time for, you know, more science to go there. We need, we need to go to those places which are our birthright. We need to go there now. You know, and so this is why I find the teachings that I'm, you know, I'm trying to put across in a Western language that doesn't have the multi, multiple levels of meaning that it has in Bengali. Um, you know, when I was living in Bengal, language here is really important. Just, you know, as an anecdote to lighten the atmosphere a little bit. At first, I learned Bengali in uh, a university, top-level university, you know, in France. And so, you know, at the end of two years, I was already translating Rabindranath Tagore. Oh, right on. Good job. I went out to my villages. Zilch. Nothing. Couldn't understand. And they did. They kind of understood a few of the words I was speaking. But I was very clearly speaking high caste language. And I understood nothing. I had the same thing when I arrived in Thailand. Same thing. These are caste-based languages. It took another two years of going back constantly, constantly to these villages. After two years, they decreed, now she knows, now she understands, okay, we can talk. And on that framework, I started to learn to speak esoteric Bengali with these people, which is very specific, very I don't have a word for it. It's esoteric Bengali. When I would go back to the cities and, you know, higher caste people, they would be very happy to talk to me because we could have intellectual conversations. I would speak esoteric Bengali to them. And this was a total shock to them. They were expecting me to speak high caste Bengali to them. I was speaking complex esoteric Bengali, all rooted in village Bengali. So they were completely thrown. You know, they, look, this woman really speaks very good Bengali, but it's not ours. And it smacks of, you know, the mud in the villages. And at the same time, she's coming with these, it's, it stinks of the mud in the villages and it's so highfalutin at the same time. So that's okay. That's a, that's a good catch net. <laughs> so it's a little bit the same thing here. I don't speak esoteric Thai and there isn't that much of it available, at least to me. But the same thing, you know, I speak very fluent village Thai. And when I come to the big city, people see, oh, yes, white skin, she has to be rich high caste. And no, nope, I just, I don't get what they're talking about. It's the same thing. So anyway, we can close that parenthesis. Just to say that, you know, I learned through the, the subtle things in the language that I cannot convey in English. I'm I have to give a very simplified version because we don't have an esoteric language of the grassroots. We have esoteric language if we read Paracelsus and things like that, and we do spagyrics. But um, but we don't have it in in our you know in our living tradition. So anyway, so the body is the is the universe. Um, what else? Now the importance of the feminine. 
And this ties back into all the rest that we've covered in the previous three episodes, Paul, because um, it's very clear that the gods, the religions, the priests have gone after the feminine with a vengeance, destroying nature, you know, destroying the natural life of small kids and completely oppressing women. You know, the, the patriarchy that might evolve naturally, so to speak, I'm putting air quotes around that word, um, in an indigenous group that has to deal with particular environmental circumstances for which you need to specialize guys to do this kind of thing and women to do that kind of thing. That's one approach, which we may sometimes call patriarchal. But the patriarchy that was ideologically and physically imposed through these religions, based on the subjugation of humankind, it targeted the feminine first and foremost. Why? Because the feminine is the bedrock. And here I need to connect with the deep Indian understanding of Shiva and Shakti. Shakti, people call them God and Goddess. No, they are what I call my word for the very high entities, I call them principles. They are way higher than anything that I would call a god. Way higher in the, in the hierarchy, the non-existent hierarchy of interdimensional, uh, let's say, entities, beings, or realities. So Shakti, being the feminine principle, is the bedrock because she is energy. And in the fakir esoteric practices, it is the female who is the subtle channel of pingala, the active channel, where, where it is males who are the ida, which is the lunar, um, more passive channel. And the goal being for ida and pingala to merge in the, in the, um, in the sushumna, the central, central the central channel, right? So, contrary to the West and to China, the core tenet in Tantra, across Tantra, and in much of mainstream India, is that Shakti is the energy principle, the power, but not power over, power to do, power to be, okay? Power to become. <coughs> And, you know, interestingly, you can correlate that with the fact that every human being has mitochondrial DNA, and the mitochondria are an evolution from bacteria that are the energy factories of our bodies, energy providers of the bodies, okay? So that understanding in Indian culture to me, is validated by the mitochondria in our bodies. And as a bedrock, energy, what is energy going to do? Energy is going to make a mess if it is not informed. And so the Shiva principle, the masculine principle, some people call it consciousness. I disagree. I would say the closest word is information. Information without energy is just dormant, exactly like Shiva. 
And energy without information is just a great big mess. And there you've got the anecdote or the, the, um, the uh, allegory of the river Ganges tumbling down from the Himalayan mountains. And, you know, she is so impetuous. She is so eager to manifest, you know, all the whatever she has in, in, in the, the, the goodness of her waters that she's destroying everything on her passage. And so the gods have to call in Shiva, do something about it. And so Shiva comes in and he informs her. And from that point, she comes down into the plain and she is this placid, large, um, you know, agriculture and life nourishing, uh, sacred, holy river, the Ganges. You know, so that's a very, you know, it's a very apt allegory. These two principles alone don't work. You put them together, they work, they produce forms, life, meaning, etc., etc., universes and what have you. So it's very much that kind of understanding that we need to have to, that we need to bring back today. The patriarchy has disempowered the fundamental energy polarity. We are saturated with what we call information. We've got an overflow of information which is which produces a kind of unnatural, synthetic, fake energy that completely invades us and makes us sick and makes us, you know, completely incapable of, of right thinking. So we need the real rebalancing of our energy. And I mean, you know that you, I, you know, I, you know that with all the work that you've done over over time, you know, restoring and balancing people's energy through diet, exercise, meditation, you know, all the practices that you teach. So, you know, I find it, I find it to be a fertile understanding to consider that we need to, you know, bring back the feminine as the energy that is. Once it is duly informed by the masculine principle, produces all the nurturing, life-giving effects that we normally attribute to the feminine. And you look at women now, they're completely, you know, distorted because they're not getting the right information from the masculine principle. The guys are not getting the right energy, true energy from the feminine principle, you can analyze all sorts of things through that particular lens. I mean, we might not need to go very deep into that rabbit hole, but it's a useful understanding to, 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 to keep in mind. Anna, I'm, I'm absolutely loving everything you're sharing. One of the things I think might be helpful, if you could define the word fakir for the listeners, because I don't think many people would be familiar with that word. Okay, uh, the word fakir, was it was popularized, you know, by the English observers of Indian lore as those crazy ascetic people who would lie on a bed of nails. But the real essence of it, and you find across the Muslim world, people who claim to be fakir, which means poor. Once again, it brings uh. us back to the complexity of the word poor that we studied on the oppressed on the oppressed side last time, being poor in a truly spiritual sense means that your material riches, whether they be there or not, don't matter. You know, as long as you have enough to live in a, you know, dignified fashion, it's okay. 
but um, it's about being having the inner humility and openness to the greater dimensions of whatever you want to call it, spirituality, reality, this, that, and the other. So Fakir is a, it's, it's a title that you find, you know, you'll find kings, kings, you know, on their palaces claiming, yes, I'm, you know, I'm king so-and-so, and actually I'm a Fakir in service to the greater truth of Allah, whatever. So it's not... Yeah, see, from studying it's, it's Sufi not, literature... Exactly, right. It's, I, it's, it's I a, thought it meant the equivalent of, of devoted, a devotee or student. No, it only means, it means poor, but poor as a okay. very, as a very rich concept. Yes. And, and it's been a while since I uh, read anything that used that particular term. So I was wanting you to clarify it even from my own means so that I was on the same page with you and not making assumptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you see, there again, the fact that I had my, you know, before years, decades before I ever knew that I'd be writing the book that you that you have, uh, you know, I received this word fakir that means poor, which kind of, you know, in my natural esoteric inner self started to activate the observation and the contemplation of what is the reality of poverty in our material world as it relates to our subtle being, to our sense of aesthetics, abundance, um, and to our enslavement. You know, the whole huge complexity of this phenomenon of poverty, when you've got those people spiritually open in the Muslim world who claim it to be a very rich word, okay? So... Yeah, I mean, those people dropped these gigantic breadcrumbs in my heart, and it's taken me a while to be able to really digest it and make it make it operational so that to the point that I can now really talk about it no longer as an anthropologist saying, oh, those people have such and such a practice, like I'm detached from them. No, I'm really, I'm one of them, basically. I can really claim that I am one of them and I'm ready to do what they told me, like, you know, okay, it's time for you to deliver that message to the world. <laughs> in all, in, you know, yeah, well, I, well, you're, you're doing it in a, in a, in, you know, in a very humble way, in a very, very humble way, because I cannot claim and I shall not claim to have, um, to have experienced the fullness of a true Bengali fakir path that was not possible and would never have been possible under the circumstances anyway. But what I do know, and what I do know experientially, I can, I can pass on. And experiential is the key word here. Those people, as I mentioned maybe already, those people in the culture that has the greatest number of millions of gods and goddesses will claim loud and clear, we have no gods, no priests, and no religion because they will have no mediation between their embodied self and the experience of reality. They will have no scripture between them and their experience of, well, you know, the universe, the greater the, and the greater self. Anybody who, you know, takes scripture to guide their life is what they say uh, is governed by inference. 
by guesswork, by secondhand knowledge. They want, they want to experience the real thing inside themselves and through the body. So that's, that's, that's a really important point. And it's, I mean, you know, that's a point that we need to acquire inside ourselves. We, it's not, we're not going to be learning. We can learn lots of things from books. But it's those things in books that really touch you, you know, it sends a, a thump into your heart and it awakens a spark of something that you may not recognize, you may not know, but you know that there's something real there and you cannot explain it. That is experiential. Hi, everybody. This is Paul Check. I come to give you a little message. I want to share some empathy. I know how hard it is to change your behavior when you got some bad diet and lifestyle habits and you look at that coffee or you look at the sugar or you look at the junk food that you're in love with and you reach for it because it's quick and easy and you keep telling yourself, I need to change, I need to change, I need to change. But eventually the system breaks down and you get motivated by the pain teacher. But what if I gave you an opportunity to try something that would help you start the process of behavior change and enjoy it and look forward to it? Well, I have something for you. It's Organifi's Red Juice. It tastes great and it's loaded with nutrition and lots of vitality for you. And I got Drew Canoli here to tell us why it works so well for behavior change and increasing your life force and your vitality. Drew, what's some, what's the magic in that red juice? Because everybody seems to love it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Paul. Sometimes when we're craving things, mm. it's hard to switch a, a habit, yeah. a behavior. Yeah. So I looked at that fundamental fact and I'm like, well, what could we create that people could crave mm. that actually tasted great? Mm -hmm. And that's when red juice was born for Good. energy. So between the berries, the blueberries, the raspberries, mm. the strawberries, yes. the best quality organic glyphosate residue free, yes. the rhodiola and the cordyceps, yes. we were onto something. We sweetened Definitely. it with a dash of monk fruit mm. and literally I started to come to life. When I drank this, I had yeah. so much more energy than I would mm -hmm. normally have. Stamina went through the roof. Yeah. I actually shaved off 45 seconds off my mild time drinking red juice before I ran. Wow. Talk about an uptick in nitric oxide production in your body, right? <laughs> Something went up. Yeah. <laughs> we know speed Actually, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I get messages all the time about sexy time. Oh, and yeah? When people drink red juice. Something's like, going up. Something's going up. And I get so many messages about that. That's funny you brought that up. Well, but, we hope it's the flag these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you're looking for more energy and stamina and something that tastes great to where you could shift your cravings, yes. keeping your hunger and your energy in check. And feel good about it. And feel good about it. And you might even break down a little bit and wander back. But if you've got some natural sweetness and a lot of nutrition, you probably, if you're honest with yourself, won't need as many chips or as many mm -hmm. of whatever your little thing is, yep. but you can do this naturally and easily. And that's what I'm all about, naturally and easily and honestly. And you know, it all starts with being honest with yourself. So if you want a great tasting behavioral switch technique that's really good for you, it has a lot of knock-on benefits for you and your whole family. Try Red Juice. Go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And because I love you, Living 4D listeners, so much, I've organized for you to get a 20% discount with the code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. And that's as fast as I can say that. I love you guys. Enjoy your Red Juice. I think that quite frankly, from a lot of experience, I think we're having a third revolution of psychedelic or plant medicine use because the, the effect of, of properly run 
plant medicine ceremonies is you do really merge into a union experience if if you don't have too much of your own mental baggage in the way, but you really do have a direct experience of unity with all that is. And then when you read spiritual literature, uh, such as, you know, the, the Hindu scriptures or the Vedas or uh, Sufi writings, it speaks to you from the inside, not from the head. And, and that's, for me, has been a very important part of my own spiritual education is, is this complete and utter having to let go to death and, and getting so deep, I had no idea if I would ever make it home. But having these profound experiences of becoming the trees and becoming the rocks and becoming the ocean and the stars and the sky. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that's important today is because when you have those experiences, you realize that the chaos of the world, particularly right now, is is really kind of like the concept before you're going to paint your house or your car, you got to scrape off the old paint or the new paint just falls off. So chaos always precedes the emergence of something new. I think from all the things we've been talking about, I think one of the real important messages is that all the programming that's kept us stuck is the old paint that we have to get off the walls of, of, of consciousness and of society and of culture because if we don't if we don't have a pathway into the mysticism and into these union experiences that can come by way of breathwork meditation uh, a variety of different approaches to flow states then what happens is we keep we keep taking new paint and writing the same old negative challenging programming on the wall and then what do you see you see people just repeating the same silliness over and over again someone comes up with a new religion but it's the same religion with a different name and there's 32,000 branches of christianity all claiming to have the authentic truth why because at the core of it they're all repeating the same programming for, in large part i don't want to make a blanket statement but i think that um what I'm really trying to say is that this, the peasants knew the plants very well. <laughs> you know, animals know the plants very well. It's, I've got great books in my library documenting that every insect and every animal ever studied knows which medicines take it into this state of union. And ants use it. Uh, bees use it. Bees get drunk and get so high they can't even fly and just lay there and giggle, uh, you know, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, you know, I think um, that we are in this wave, the third wave of, of plant medicine use, because people are coming to this point in themselves where they're so traumatized and so stressed from the same old bad story that they're desperately seeking a deeper wisdom to guide their lives. And so I think it's the a kind of a marriage of healing ourselves of the old story that you've laid out very clearly in the three previous episodes 
And, and I think it's very important because you can't heal something that's in the unconscious. You have to bring it up to the conscious. So the real first step is being brave enough to look at other viewpoints. The second step is being brave enough to explore them. And the third step is to say, who do I choose to be now that I know there are options that give me more freedom and higher levels of connection and consciousness than this old story I was programmed into in a temple or a church as a kid, or that my parents keep inflicting upon me. And I, I think really we're in a great, massive transition. And if we don't make the transition, uh, you know, I, I don't think I need to connect the dots for people. The 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 writing on the wall doesn't look good. Yeah. Well, this is you know, a lot of people are saying the whole world population is going through an initiation. And you know, this is esoterically very true. Um, on the, but it's an initiation that is driven by gurus who are organizing it towards their own ends of unnatural death. And here I want to, you know, take off from what you were saying. You used the word death uh, in, you know, in what you were just saying. And that is a crucial it's absolutely crucial on any um, mystic, meditative, transformational path. There is the element of death that happens, that has to happen within one's life. It's not just death as being the end point of a life. Death is happening all the time within life. We know it, you know, in ourselves and within our body, you know, the renewal of our organs and our tissues. But because we've been programmed into these different religions, cults of unnatural death, we fear more than anything else the idea of the end point of this life, which is something that healthy traditional peoples do not fear at all. It's, you know, it's something they look forward to provided they have conducted the right life that prepares them properly for that moment, which is, in fact, the apotheosis of this life as the threshold into what comes later in the, you know, eternal life of the soul or, or the self or whatever you want to call it. So this business of um, dying is a really very important concept in all sane and healthy traditional esoteric or initiatic cultures and there is initiation in everybody's life. We go through life cycle, natural life cycle initiations, and we go through those that are culturally engineered in a sane way by a sane culture to amplify a good life leading into an apotheosis of a good death. So you have to train yourself to die alive, as they say out there in, in, in India. It's dying alive. And that means letting go of the stuff that doesn't serve you. But you are holding on to it because you prefer your familiar hell over the unknown paradise that's on the other side of that piece of death. So these people are going to have, they're going to work on their bodies and their emotions, going against the automated, um, you know, bodily habits in sexual intercourse, for instance. That's the, you know, what 
That's what people think is Tantra is only tantric sex. That's only one small part of it, but it's an important part of it. And then they're going to go against, ah, if they want to have a pure body that produces pure medicinal urine, they can't eat meat. So they're going to have to forego meat if they are meat eaters, things like that. And the greatest thing is they're going to have to make their fear die, their anger die, their infatuation die. So they, you know, they, they engineer into their path episodes or moments of dying alive. And the more you're capable of dying alive and the juicier your actual life becomes. And this is also what preserves your youthfulness, your energy, um, your happiness, and your ability to serve others. The more you've been able to die alive, the more your knowledge, your body, your wisdom, your whatever is of use and service to others. So the whole business of dying is really, it's really, really important. It is. And it's also from a Christian perspective, the, the concept of dying before you die is really an authentic expression of the second coming of Christ, because when you actually die before you die, you realize, A, the beauty of life, but you also realize the beauty of death, and you realize that there isn't a death. There's a death of the physical body, but there's not a death of the consciousness within you, and the authentic experience of dying before you die, which I have, have had many times, is the legitimate second coming of Christ. And and many people, of course, as you know, have this idea of Christ as a man. And I refer them right to Char Charles Fillmore's Christian Metaphysical Dictionary, which one of the definitions of Christ is one who is united with all. And when you die before you die, you have a union experience of being one with all. And that is the second coming of Christ. And then you see your enemies as People that are people that need more love, not more uh, bullets shot at them or more torture. Um, and, and so I actually took a section of Jesus's teachings out of the Bible and rewrote it in the terminology that I uh, am using in my new book and that I teach my students so they could actually see if you take these old words and you replace them with words that aren't so packed in. Uh, polarity and and um, uh, judging God, you actually see this uniform language. And I have a beautiful book in my library called The Parallel Sayings of Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, and Lao Tzu. And the whole book is taking passages of the sayings of those four masters and showing you that they're all saying the same thing. But until you look at them side by side, you have all this infighting. Oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. This, oh, it has to be this way. I'm like, okay, yeah. Then come read this book with me and see what happens. Yeah, well, I mean, well, since you mentioned, you know, um, again, the Christian religion and Christ, the Christ. It's the Christ. It's not Christ. It's, 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 it's an attribute. It's not a name. Um, it's also a title in the sense that well, a title, one who yes. is Christed is somebody who has become united with all, and they know what's really going on here. Okay, right. And but the point is, you know, this is why I say, people, if you pull Jesus Christ over, 
uh, as a cop because he was speeding, it would not say Jesus Christ on his driver's license. That would be like Paul's CEO. It would say maybe Jesus and a last name, but Christ is a title. It, it's it's a, a statement that I have. I understand who I am, and therefore I understand who you are. So, but that's where you know you refer to the the that phrase of the second coming of Christ. Yes, my understanding is through the through the writing of this book, through you know feeling deeply into all these things. Um, to me. It's the activation of the Christ principle in all of us as a human principle with a capital H. It's, okay, when people talk about where we have good Christian values, they are human values with a, cap with a capital H. So, you know, it's, to my mind, for the Christians who really understand, you know, experientially what we're talking about, it's not Jesus Christ that is going to come back and save them. It's they have to activate the Christ principle inside them, which is an utterly human principle. Which and is it's dependent upon love. It's 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 synonymous with love, but it goes it 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 has to do with the mystery of what it is to be human which is to be both an interdimensional being and an incarnate 3D body being that has to do stuff here and has to, to be able to do stuff. You know, we have to have that interdimensionally, interdimensionality of who we are embodied in ourselves with a new conscious awareness of it. And it is precisely that junction of the two that has been occulted from us. And we need to recover it. Right? And this is what these fakir, these fakir are doing nothing but that. And, you know, this is why they emphatically say, no gods, no religions, no priests. Our path is the human path. And it is universal. You know, and they have yes, not I traveled. Love it. Okay, they don't know anything about other cultures in the world. They just know in their bones that this reality of the path, of which they have a certain Bengali version, is a universal human path of uniting, reuniting everything that we are in the interdimensional, subtle realms with what we are here in our, in our body which is not only a vehicle, it's not only a vector, it is something that is constantly in intercommunication with all our subtle dimensions. The soul, the emotions, the thoughts, the subtle you know, energy body, the auric, the causal, etc. Everything is constantly in mutual uh, dialogue with the physicality of who we are. And the physicality of who we are is very little, actually, in terms of you know, how much empty space, how much akash we are. So, you know, I mean, okay, we, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole now because I want to stick with the, with the main, you know, points of the fakir as they apply to us, to us today. But, you know, when you realize that consciously and you, you feel it in your bones, well, you don't need to be afraid anymore. You 
don't need to be unloving anymore. You can, you know, you have discernment. You can sniff out what is true and what is untrue. You can, you can discern that what is happening now is a gigantic death event, which is, on the one hand, the death of the old civilization, the, the civilization that we are still attached to, the peop some people want to go back to the old normal. Well, the old normal was really very bad for the planet, and it wasn't particularly good for us. Um, you know, people, people in the developed West may have been fooled by the fact that we had some decades of affluence in the West, but they, you know, and they would get the news about horrible things to the third world and, you know, the exploitation of kids by Nike factories and, you know, African uh, rare metal, you know, um, mines where little kids were being used. But that was all out there. We could be, we could be, you know, outraged sincerely, but it was out there. Now the same unnatural death that has been applied around the globe to the planet herself and to everything alive, it's happening to all of us now. And so we need to have, we need to go through the death of the old civilization. That would, that is what I would call a natural death of a, an ecosystem, a, a non-virtual ecosystem that is coming to the end of its useful life in evolutionary terms. And it is, it is presented to the world within the context of the unnatural death of real life, real humans, real animals, real nature, real earth by, by the oppressors. So we've got this duality. We need to be able to discern the good part of the death event that is happening now and the unnatural death which belongs with the death cult that wants to take over the world into transhumanism, posthumanism, and all, and, and all that. So we need to discern, there again, it's the, the real and the fake, the natural and the unnatural. And, you know, we need to do some dying alive to be able to do that discernment. Well, we do because part of dying alive is a process of sacrificing what you need to sacrifice or let go of. Uh, you know, we, we, we need to, for example, we need to go into a period of, of sacrificing excessive consumption of natural resources. And I, I mean, sacrifice by letting go of our habitual uh, abuse of the planet as though it was an object and realize that over consuming uh, oil, over consuming resources of any type means we have to change the way we live. We need to go on a very carefully controlled fast. And the things that we have to fast from are all the things that are trying to be pumped into us and rammed down our throats by the very people running this whole uh, dangerous chicade here that ultimately are trying to enslave us so that they can increase the rate of consumption for their own profit. So the the paradox of all this is we've got to fast ourselves from television and social media and junk food and more cars than we need and more toys than we need, et cetera, et cetera. Because if we don't disconnect our sense of self and our sense of happiness and our sense of, of, of living, 
from these false icons of success or of status or of symbol or of power, then what happens is you die without any sense of the spiritual process. And Steiner says something very profound (laughs) that I think a lot of people might want to meditate on. He says, the first thing that happens when you die is you find yourself surrounded by people just like you. And you stay there until you're absolutely sure of what you will never do again. <laughs> yeah. And I think for a lot of people, that's going to be a painful experience <laughs> to have yeah, to well. sit there with, with over consumers, judgmental, harsh, you know, you know, like look at these people that are, I've seen so many video clips of them. They're the pro-vaxxers that say you non-vaxxers are the evil of the world. You should rot in hell. They should put you in prison. I'm like, okay, wait, wait till you have to meet yourself. That's going to be an interesting death experience. You are definitely going to want to read the (laughs) Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian (laughs) Book of the Dead. And you want want to check into the concept of Mott weighing your heart against a feather. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing I would take issue with in what you've just said, Paul, is using the word sacrifice. Sacrificing the junk that you don't need that is poisoning you, it's not a sacrifice, especially as we have abundantly talked about what the reality of the word sacrifice means, which means you yeah. know, the, the offerings to the God at the expense of the reality of life. So... Um, yes, I, I knew you would say that. Yeah, well, I, I had tried to. to use a word that everybody listening can let understand. Go. Well, no, that's For, another word. I'm that's using it. it. Yes, let go of. I mean, yeah. I, Paul, I I understand. We're both trying. We're we're trying to put across things to people, but we have to alert, especially you know, people who are monolingual. They live within one language, and they don't question the meaning, the meanings of the words they use. These meanings all have a history. And the word sacrifice, like the word God, like the word religion, has a history that weighs ah, more than the Himalayas. So, uh, you know. Yeah, the other problem, though, is if you use if you use a correct word that nobody understands, you have no communication. So, no, but letting I'm trying go, to walk that tightrope. Letting go is is you know that says exactly what it is. It's. Thank it, you. Yeah, I mean, people <laughs> might express they might think that it's a sacrifice in the conventional. Um, non-esoteric. Well, that, thing the of, conventional oh, I term is renounce. what I was using. Right? No, renounce. Yes, renounce. Yes, okay. renounce we, is good. Letting we, go is good. We have other words, uh, so that we're fasting not is, is what I backed it up with. Exactly. I like that one very much, very, very much. And you know, fasting once again is known in all traditional cultures to be a very virtuous thing. Um, that is imposed on us in in uh, natural cultures. It's imposed by nature. You know, in springtime, once you've eaten up all the grain and the beans that you stored for the winter, and before stuff starts growing, there ain't much stuff to eat. You're going to eat wild, gra- wild plants. Uh, you know, like dandelion, which are going to clean up your system, and you're going to lose weight. You're going to lose weight. You might drink the sap from uh, birch trees and whatever trees are, you know, detoxers, cleansers. And 
that's just, it's baked into nature. It's baked into the cycles. So, yeah, going back to those things, actually, you know. Anyway, point well taken. Um, please, no sacrifice. Please, 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 please. Well, the other thing that happens when you go through a fast like that is your head gets real clear. Oh, yes. Yeah, because you, you clean know, up your gut. You can even start having, you can even have met- mystical experiences and visions and you know, this is why a lot of uh, Native American Indian cultures used fasting as part of a vision quest. Absolutely, sure. And I know from fasting, when I fast, there's no way I can do intellectual work. My mind just just doesn't work. It's the other mind that takes over. <laughs> but I can't, I can't work efficiently in the modern world, you know, as a cog in, in the wheel. Have you ever found yourself feeling frustrated because you can't find food worth eating in airports when working on the road, traveling, or when pressed for time and you have to rush out of the house before you can make something you can trust as real food? I know I sure have. Well, I've got a beautiful surprise for you. I found Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley has extremely high standards and use only the highest quality, cleanest sources for their animal and plant food products, and they have excellent jerky meats, neatly packaged so you can take them anywhere and never be stuck without something great to feed your beautiful body and stabilize your mind. I love their pasture-raised turkey sticks in their original or cranberry orange flavor. I'm allergic to beef, but Angie, Penny, and the kids absolutely love their grass-fed beef sticks, which come in jalapeno, summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, teriyaki, and original flavors. I can assure you Paleo Valley's meat sticks are so good you could literally make a meal out of them or have them as snacks and you'd feel satisfied and satiated and know you've fed your body top quality nutrition that will make your cells dance for joy. Paleo Valley has lots of other great additions to meet your food nutrition needs and their website is loaded with great articles, podcasts, recipes, and more. Go to paleovalley.com, that's P-A-L-E-O valley.com, and get your 15% Living 4D discount by using the code CHECK15. That's small K-C-H-E-K, 15 on checkout. The whole family will be satiated, nourished, and glad that you did. Enjoy. Where do you want to round it all out with? Uh, How do you want to um, take us home? Yeah, I want to finish with something that that may be a little bit surprising that has to do with the, the chakra because there is there is a very important point in the body that is not included in the chakra system. You know, we've got the throat chakra and the heart chakra. In between those two, there is the point that is the junction, the cross that is formed by the human body of our vertical plane and our horizontal plane. The horizontal plane being the line that is drawn by our arms all the way out to our fingers. And why is this important? In terms of what we are to do as interdimensional beings taking an embodiment on this earth to do stuff, to make things, to make manifest stuff and to promote evolution, which is something that the gods cannot do and for which they envy us. So there is a very crucial point that I have found in no chakra systems, which is the intersection. And it's the, cr- the, 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 the cross that is in the human body, which, you know, why is Jesus on a cross? It's putting in your face the occultation of something that is 
fundamental to us bringing from the interdimensional realms into this realm the reality that we need to manifest. So the point of intersection is basically, you know, it's it's between the the official heart chakra and the and the throat chakra, and it also has to do with the importance. Okay, I'm speaking now as a fakir. This is not something that the fakir have told me. This is me deriving a logical, experiential conclusion from learning everything about the universe from the body. The hands are the most complex anatomical systems of our body. And they are paleoanthropologically connected with the mouth for speaking, for language, and with the brain for the development of higher, higher intellectual functions. Interalia, okay? But it is, you know, paleoanthropologists have been able, uh, at least those in France that I studied, way back when, they showed that it was the development of the interaction between the hand and the brain that promoted the development of elaborate language and elaborate thought processes, physiologically. So this is a matter of bringing in the interdimensional aspect into, the, into physicality. It's our hands, mainly, that do everything that we do in life. And so you will have an intelligence of the hands Somebody who's only ever using a mouse and a computer all day long has an intelligence of the hands and thus of what is in the head that is very stunted. As opposed to somebody who does all sorts of stuff, you know, in the kitchen, in the garden, in messing around in engines and things like that. You know, I've often found way greater real intelligence in illiterate people who are herbalists, who are mechanics, than with, you know, people that I've known who are, you know, postdocs and, you know, great thinkers of that type. The hands develop relationships. That's how I would say it. You know, I, I'm a guy that works with stones, with plants, with metals, with electronics, with engines, with welding, and the long list of things. So. When I look through my life, if I didn't have my hands, I would not have that intimate relationship with the plant or the roots or the stones or the beautiful experience of welding and drawing a bead and seeing molten metal come together to join things and make new things. You know, my mother's a very skilled craftswoman and a knitter, and she makes beautiful things with her hands. So I think. The hands are really where consciousness meets material reality, and the relationship is bound together through what we create with our hands. And think of how important the hands are for making love. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, for, and even, I mean, there's also the, all the subtle currents of the body that end up in, at the extremity the of the fingers. The sensitivity at the extremity of the fingers is, you know, it's totally exquisite for somebody who does work with the elements like you do. And it's, these are things that can be cultivated. They are naturally there in small children. But basically, this has to do with this axis 
where the axis of being meets the axis of doing. You could view it as the axis of Shiva and the axis of Shakti. So it's this point. This point is something that, since I've discovered it, has accelerated my transformation in a huge way. And so I would really like to share this with people. To preface this, I would also like to say that the seven chakra system that has become official around the world is only one of many chakra systems that was developed over the history of, uh, of, of Tantra. It's, it, it originates with, with yeah, Tantra. There is many of them. By the way, that point that you're, that, the point you're referring to, yeah. I think you're going to find something really interesting if you research what's called the assemblage point. Exactly. You're pointing right to the right to the assemblage point, which is the junction of the uh, lower three and the upper three. It's where the upper half of the tube torus of our energy field meets the lower half. So if you think of it, you know what a tube torus looks like, just like the the energy field of the earth. So we have one that emanates just above the heart, goes up around our upper chakras and loops back into the lower chakras. And that's called the assemblage point. And I've actually got a very good book in my library by a guy that uh, ex is an expert on that and and uh, gives all the, the dynamics, but shows how if that point gets moved due to trauma, it, it has very negative effects on people. So he teaches a therapeutic approach to balancing the assemblage point. And I've used that technology with a number of patients over the years, but I just, I didn't know if you were familiar with that, but if you look into the assemblage point, I think from what you're describing, it's what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm just talking about it experientially. So, you know, it's good that it's yes, validated. Yeah, that's why I'm trying to give you... It's I'm good that it's, that they're, it's, they're, it's validated by somebody else. But I have, you know, it's... I, it, to me, it's experiential. And it has, you know, I've never been able to feel the seven chakra. Okay? I can feel the three... The three, you know, the da lower Dantian, the heart Dantian, and the those three, yes, they're very clear. The others, basically, the seven chakra system was brought to the West. I'm not sure whether it was Blavatsky who did it. Somebody in the 19th century imported it to the West. The West turned it into a system and started putting all sorts of things, you know, Oh, the, the, the heart chakra and the, uh, navel, the under the navel chakra does this and does that. You, and then the Indians took it and started, you know, putting specific attributes on each chakra. Whereas there have been at least a dozen different systems of chakras where you have three, four, twelve, and the seven, you know, the seven chakra system. The seven chakra system is the latest, basically, that was, that was, discovered or invented by them. So there is nothing rigid about the chakra system. And, you know, I don't get hooked up on it. I don't use it at all. It's, it's, it can be helpful in the same way as astrology can be helpful, even though astrology, which is tropical, is not aligned with the real stars as in sidereal astrology. So we're talking about a system that we should not take as gospel truth. It's just one formalization of energy systems, we can use a different approach. But when this particular one is activated, it changes everything. And so what I would like to say to people, and this is this is a practical 
um, tiny practice that people can do, which it it uh, it awakens, it quickens, it quickens the um, the reunion basically of the soul and the body. You know, I was asking yesterday, I was mentioning that you know most people have they know that they have a soul, but it's a kind of very vague thing. Where is it exactly? Is it inside? Is it outside? Is it floating around? Is it big? Is it small? What is it? I've discovered that when you feel inside, first you have to def unfocus the eyes, because if the eyes are focused, then you know th th there's a tension that is dominant and prevents going inside. You go inside at this point that is basically between between the two. Um, what they called uh, the scapula, the scapula at the back. Okay, that's the other thing. We tend to measure things from the front of the body. Everything that really happens in the subtle body is at the back, where we have the central channel. In esoteric terms, it's at the back that the activation happens, and then, and then we can bring it to the front. Having conceptualizing and experiencing the energies on the front needs to be uh, supported and bolstered and rooted in having those energy vectors rooted at the back, just, just in front of the spine. So one needs to feel, to feel into that, the point that is basically between the two scapula, between the two extended arms, Feel that point of junction between the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. And to press it, so to speak, use your sort of uh, esoteric third hand to press it nearly into your nearly into your spine. There's a very there's a very real quasi-physical sensation that happens when that is done. It can be activated also by vibrating silently a sound on that point. When I discovered that, I mean, everything changed for me. I discovered that, you know, in relation to the, the, the things that came to me in, 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 in contemplation. This is an activator and an accelerator of the rooting of the soul in the body. And the soul being our interdimensional being that needs to be solidly anchored in our body if we are to be able to use what we are for this death experience, planetary death experience, to go into the new, the new cycle of life and to you know overcome all the stuff that is going on now. So I don't know whether that was clear enough. Well, I, I think it's 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 important because you're sharing your experience of it. And I think it's also important because other people can try it. Um, for those of you that can't see her, cause you're listening to it on audio and is pointing to just below the manubrium of the sternum where your collarbones attach, but she's saying, go extend your hand as though your hand reaches in extend your energy to just in front of your spine. And at that point, you're between your shoulder blades. While you were talking, 
because I have a lot of, of practices that I use so I can move my consciousness around very easy, I just move my consciousness up the spine. And I found when I got to write about where you're at, that the energy was evenly dispersed through my whole body. If I go above that point with my consciousness, then it goes up into the head. If I go below, it starts to go down lower in the body. So what I felt is right at that point that you're referring to is where there's a marriage of flow of consciousness into the upper aspects and the lower aspects of the body as a totality. And that's really what the whole concept of the assemblage point is really talking about. Because if someone's assemblage point gets moved, then they start having health problems or there could be a, a visual problem or hearing problems because they're, uh, we could say consciousness or we could say soul is not um, evenly invested in their physical self. Yeah, but I mean, absolutely correct. What I would like to add to that is that it's a way for people to become aware of the true presence of the soul in the body. And you can, you can nearly feel it. It's not a physical substance, but you can feel it to be substantive. You can feel it to be really inhabiting you. That's where it is. It needs to be given its root there for us to be able to have our beingness informing and energizing our doingness because we are here to do stuff. So the fact that it is this intersection of the two, that's exactly, you know, that's an absolutely crucial point, which reverberates, as you say, towards the the towards the up and towards the down because there is no hierarchy between the up and the down that's another point that's really important but you know we don't need to go down that rabbit hole it's if people are prepared to do this it's actually i mean it is such a precise physical location in the body as opposed to yeah find you know this or that chakra uh, it's two fingers or it's three fingers or it's four fingers below or above, depending on who is teaching you. It's kind of vague. But this one is absolutely precise and it is really coded in in the you know in the geometric the geometric cross-shaped plane of the spine and the extended arms. Our beingness matching and working in harmony with our doingness. And we are at a phase now where our beingness needs to be present for our doingness to be effective more than ever. Now. Yes. Otherwise, your doingness is unconscious. It's just programmed behavior. Exactly. And this is, you know, we are at a time now where, you know, the, the death process of letting go of all stuff, you know, the old normal, the old civilization, we, this is the time when we need to bring the soul fully into anchorage in our physicality for us to be able to be and do what we really are and to start discovering who the hell we really are that was occulted from us so you know it's a it's a it's a grand it's a it's a it's a grand um potential it's you know to me it holds so much promise and i know how profound it has been for me it's, you know, just this one little thing. And I revisited, I'll, you know, of course I do it when I'm sitting in contemplation, but several times a day, 
several times a day, I go back and check, is it really still anchored there? You know, and if, if I feel that it's floating because there's, you know, there's crappier en energy around me or I'm feeling that I'm grieving a bit too much about whatever's going on, I just take my, you know, the third hand or whatever it is, the consciousness, um, unspoken sound that you vibrate inside yourself and you can re-anchor it to that point just in front of the spine. And it really works. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 and it's real. Yeah, I think part of the issue too is that if our soul is not centered in our body due to soul loss, uh, unresolved trauma, then we lose access to our intuition and we lose access to our feeling capacity. And with, you know, when you look at Jung's four functions of consciousness, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, and we're so heavy into thinking that we've lost our capacity for true feeling, and we're so oriented towards sensation that we've lost our capacity for intuition. And intuition is really the function of consciousness that fills in the blanks that the intellect cannot access. So you could say intuition is a parallel process that orients itself to the mind of the universe, but thinking's a linear process that chops everything up. So I think things like chanting, toning, uh, shadow work, um, forgiveness, prayer, and spending time in meditation, in quiet, just D detaching yourself from the buzz, the news, the bad news, the uh, who's screwing who, uh, your bills, your arguments, your fears and frustrations, and just giving yourself time to simply really practice being um, helps reboot the system. Like you have to reboot a computer now and then. And when you have time in silence and you stop identifying yourself as this or that person or this or that task that's got to be done, then you start having intuitive access and becoming able to let your soul guide you. But in order for your soul to guide you, you have to shut the intellectual ego down or you can't hear the soul. The soul is a whisper and the thoughts in our head are like a, a, a megaphone blasting off. And the challenge is that when the world gets crazy like it is, it's hard for people to calm all that down. And that's where I think things like simple, repetitive exercise, like rowing, jogging, swimming, walking, um, any of those chopping wood, raking leaves, sweeping the floor, washing the dishes. Steiner describes how those types of activities are so important. Because they're just, they require just enough involvement for the ego to keep it engaged, but the ego's so full of itself that it actually falls asleep at the wheel. Well, Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff was a champion of what you're saying, right? So, I mean, but he, you know, but he made it really, it was really, 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 really hard. And the thing is that today, you know, we don't have time for the slow processes that most of the masters have taught us. You know, doing those things, 
is essential. I agree. And I do them, you know, and I do them happily. And it's not just to, you know, to reduce the, 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 the ego of the mind. The point about doing this particular thing that I'm advocating is that it can also help heal the soul loss. Because when you're, you're really, you're focusing in a relaxed way on anchoring the soul there, you are calling back all the bits and pieces of soul loss that we've all suffered. We all come into this life with a lot of soul loss. And so, you know, to be able to bring it back, you can, you can spend decades bringing back the bits and pieces, which is, you know, what people like you and I have, have done. But you can also, I do believe, accelerate it by bringing in the soul. Here I can, there's a very beautiful thing that the fakir, the fakir don't use the word soul. That what we use as soul and spirit is all part of the subtle body. But there is the notion of an unknown bird. And yes, that's the un- common symbol of the soul. Yes, but this they call it the unknown bird. And it has a cage and it keeps flying out of the cage. And when will I be able to keep the unknown bird in the cage? And this unknown bird is also, it also is called an untranslatable phrase that basically means the unknown anthropos, human being, of the heart-mind. It's very, you know, it's a very compact uh, phrase in, in Bengali. The full meaning is the unknown human being of the heart-mind, which, you know, we would translate as the higher self, the greater self, and things like that, the true self. Okay, the real being of my heart, basically. It's, to some extent, the soul being, the interdimensional being that we are, and that has taken on the challenge of this embodiment to try and bring in the phenomenal energies of out there, of the interdimensionality of who we are, and make them manifest and do stuff in this world, in this reality. And we need more people to be there now, fast. And so, for this reason, I advocate this very simple practice. You know, for people who have a lot of soul loss, they may have a lot of trouble finding that point and staying there. But even if they have tiny microseconds of feeling, oops, yes, there is that point where there is a quickening or there is a stabilization, or there is there's a physical sensation. It may be very slight, or it may be very obvious. But when you start having that sensation, you can, you can cultivate it. And the more you cultivate it, the faster the anchoring of the soul in your body is going to take place. Awesome. P3OM by Bioptimizers is hands down one of the most important supplements to have on you everywhere you go. If you're traveling, if you go to work, if you're going to friend's house to eat, this product will knock out food poisoning and almost any kind of gut disorder from viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever could irritate your gut so quickly. It's mind-blowing. I have been using this product since Wade Lightheart first turned me on to it, and he's the formulator of it. And I've got Wade here to tell us how it works, but I just want you to hear it from me. 
I have all my clients use this. I try to get it to friends, to family members, because it is really like your own bodyguard. So Wade, how in the world does this thing work so well every time? Well, as you know, we're very research oriented and we have literally a university in Croatia that we do microbiome testing with our labs of PhDs to find out what's the most effective formulation. And we are quickly moving into the post-antibiotic world where we need to cultivate super probiotics. We all heard of super bad bacteria in hospitals and stuff that are antibiotic resistance. But what we did, we worked with a medical doctor that was able to take an aggressive strain of L. plantarum, which is a very aggressive strain, and then put it through almost like a BUDS camp, a Navy SEALs training where we subjected this particular probiotic to a toxic environment. We ran a sine wave through it. And out of that survived only about somewhere between 2 and 3%. We then take that and grow it on very special food. We feed them just like you would feed a great athlete. You feed them special food. And the probiotics develop unique capabilities. We have a U.S. patent that is so powerful, I can't read it on the airwaves because we'd get canceled. But what I can say is when you put P3OM in your body, it goes out and breaks down any undigested protein, whether it's in your gut or through your blood system. And it becomes your Navy SEALs defense force, if you will, to go out and wipe out whatever pathogen might come in your body. You just need more of these guys to overwhelm it. It takes it out. It cleans up any messes. And for the last 18 years, I've been using P3OM daily. And I can honestly say, I've never been sick during that time. If I feel something coming on, I just double down my dosage, take four caps every night. If I get a little, if I'm traveling, I take twice that. And it's been great. A lot of our people do it. And it's one of our best-selling products. And it's available to your audience. Just go to p3om.com slash living40. Put in Paul 10, get a 10% discount. And if it's not the best probiotic you've ever had in your life, you get 100% of your money back. That's from us at Bioptimizers. That's our guarantee for you. Go get it. It's for real. I love the stuff. Thank you, Wade. Any closing comments? Uh, closing comments. I'm Paul. I'm I'm very happy and very very honored to have had this luxury of four sessions with you, of you know discovering you know, not just through the internet, but now through encountering you through this medium, getting to know you and having these dialogues with you. It's been a great honor and a great pleasure. I consider that I've found a friend, a real friend. Yes. And um, I, you know, I hope, I hope people will find benefit, those who will want to read the book. I should say that Ah, if people want to get the book from me in print form, they have to hurry up because A, the transport disruption around the world causes many, many delays, and B, the only mode of payment that I can receive here is PayPal, and PayPal is closing down in a couple of months' time the ability for individuals to receive payments. So things are, That's you know, weird. a number of doors are closing. Consequently, people who want a signed physical, you know, print copy from me, uh, they have to hurry up. It has to be done within 
well, the next month or so. Other than that, well, the book is available. It's already available um, on BookBaby. The last time I checked on Amazon a couple of days ago, it was not re reinstated. So I have to look into that. I have my suspicions about why that is. Um, you know, the sort of cover of the book is kind of graphic in an interesting way. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I was suspicious of that myself. I was hoping it was just a technical glitch, but we will see. It's, the, um, it's lasting. It's lasting a bit longer than the technical glitch. So, on the other hand, you know, considering that Amazon is part and parcel of. I mean, it's not just the, you know, the empire of one of the richest people in the world, but they're also engaged in extremely nefarious practices. So I can understand that people want to go to Amazon because it's convenient. Amazon already has their account. They just do one click and it's done. Um, I mean, more and more people are moving away from Amazon for, you know, ethical, moral reasons. And so, you know, if people want to get... The ebook that is already available, they can go to a thing called Book Baby Store, Book Baby, um, and the ebook is already there. Uh, you know, like that, I actually make a tiny bit more money, which also supports me. Whereas on Amazon, I can tell you, I tell I, on Amazon, you get next to nothing. So, um, so that's it for now. I am laboring with book baby on the print version for some reason the thing that i could print perfectly well clean and you know professionally here in thailand with no difficulty they are having a lot of difficulty out there so i'm still battling on the issue of the print version but since i'm being shut out of paypal here and you know, I'm not seeing that transport options will get any better in future from Thailand to the rest of the world. I have decided that it's best to have, you know, Book Baby be the aggregator and distributor for the print version also. So the people who are in a hurry and who want a signed copy from me, get in touch through my little website, Emma Right Tort Books, all in one word, uh, dot com. There's a contact R -E -I -T -T -O -R -T, form. R-E-I-T-T-O-R-T. Anna, R-E-I-T-T-O-R-T, books.com. I wanted to make a comment. The the uh, e-book version, uh, is it on Kindle or just e-book? No, it's, it's uh, um, uh, Book Baby distributes it to all the other major retailers. So, but if it's, it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to be on Kindle if it's not on Amazon. Right. Okay. So, um, the, but the but nice thing about an ebook is, you, is you can search it electronically, so you can find stuff a lot quicker than you can with a hardback. So there are there is a benefit for people that want to search Absolutely. topics. But the, anyway, I mean, the ebook, you know, you can read it. You don't need a Kindle to be able to read it on, you know, the other carriers. They e Book Baby provides the Mobi and the EPUB and the you know all the different um, formats for ebook. So that's the advantage of working through an aggregator who will then, you know, do the distribution. I don't know. Perhaps it's already in. It should be in Barnes & Noble. I haven't checked. I've only checked Amazon. But, um, you know, yeah, the ebook is, if you want to make annotations, 
I mean, I like, I really like the physical thing. I'm a book, physical book person, but reading the yeah, ebook is, too. reading the ebook is, it's, it's also, you know, it also works. Well, you can also print it. I mean, it's not a hard thing to do. You especially if, if you don't, if you're just a person with a small printer, then just take it to uh, a big printer and and print it for your own purposes. Is that is uh, that allowed with something like that? No, the ebook you can't print. Plus, what the ebook is, oh. it's it's huge. It's a thousand, over a thousand pages. The people who would like to have, and this would be probably the preferred option for a print version where we are in control of what we're doing. People can pay me the same amount as the ebook, and I can send them the PDF. Um, they can write to me there again on my little website, and I can send them the PDF that they can print at home. It will save the transport costs, which are pretty hefty from Thailand. The only thing you don't get then is, you know, my illustrious signature on the front page. But you know, so what? Yeah, well, at least they get the they your signatures on every single page at Anna. <laughs> <laughs> but so you know that would be actually I think that would be the most um, uh, expedient alternative solution. I can send the PDF and it just prints and it's you know it's what three hundred and seventy pages, so it's it's better than trying to print a thousand pages from a B an ebook, which you can't do anyway, unless you know how to tweak, you know, unless you know how to decipher the programming. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a lot of work. Well, okay. So there I are think, different, I think different possibilities. There. Yeah. I think that anybody that wants it is going to get it. And uh, I can just say it only took me two chapters to say, I have got to get Anna on the podcast and we've got to go through the key themes of this book because I read enough of it to see the real solid um, referencing, the common sense, the the honesty, the and I've studied enough to look at a book like that and go, this is a real book. This is this is something people need to read. And I think, you know, I would I I probably had to read. 150 or 200 books to get what you've packed into one book. And that's one of the things that really struck me about it. When I started reading, I'm like, wow, she's got some of the concepts from this guy and from this guy. And, and, and it's all beautifully synthesized into one coherent message that I think is really important for the world. And, and, you know, I think what, what the series has done is it's, it's made it clear that, you know, that sometimes real, real medicine doesn't taste very good. You know, ayahuasca isn't something that somebody lines up to get, let me have some Kool-Aid. You know, it's, this is not Jim Jones Kool-Aid, but the, the, the reality of it is, is that um, if, if you're really interested in the truth and I'm a truth seeker, then Anna's book is a very, very potent book. But if you're really just trying to bolster your own fear and your own dogma so you don't have to look at the world then Anna's book is going to be one hell of a bomb blast for you <laughs> yeah well but i mean you need the bomb blast i mean you know you, yeah. really, you need to know and to own the ship of the world we need to yes we need to be I just able know that the people digest it alchemize it and come out the other end you know, it's, yeah, it's, I'm just making the point that the people, the yeah. people that don't want the bomb blaster, are are not going to buy it because they don't want to challenge their own belief system. 
But for those of you that invite bomb, I invite bomb blasts. I mean, when I can find somebody that can help me see things more holistically or in a broader perspective or from a different culture's perspective, to me, that's called growth. And I'm like, when I started reading your book, I'm like, wow, like I will close with something that I learned from your book that was quite interesting. When you talked about the Dalai Lama and how they were hunting the shamans down. I had never read that in any other book in my life. And I went, I had no idea. I've read all sorts of stuff about battles and Buddhism and, and all sorts of brainwashing and trickery. And, 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 and it made it clear to me that Buddhism had the same problems that Western religions do. But when you described how the, the Dalai Lamas were the ones that were ex- getting rid of the shaman, that shocked me. Well, well, yeah, no, that is known. I mean, I learned it in anthropology class that, you know, that form of Buddhism had to absorb the Bon, the Bon religion, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the shamanic uh, religion to integrate its rituals, okay? Integrate its rituals because it had a lot of magic potency. But basically my source for that, I did, you know, that's Peter Kingsley. And there is, you know, the book, has in its bibliography the references of Peter Kingsley, but there is a very slim book that I recommend people buy by Peter Kingsley called An Arrow Waiting to Pierce You. It's a very, very tiny book where you, it's about 150 pages. Half of those 150 pages are references. This guy is a scholar in, I mean, you know, uh, I'm not a scholar compared to him. It's phenomenal. So everything that he says in the first part, which is phenomenally moving, and I think that's I think buy it. I, yeah yeah I think that's the book where he talks about that. But I'm not sure. It may be in another one of his books. But if you want to have a first taste of him, get that one, and then you can get his other ones. But I <laughs> wrote down, and as I was reading today, I put a sticky tag. Get this book. <laughs> And meaning where you were referencing him. Right. Well, I mean, as we're in the closing phase, I, you know, pay tribute to you for giving me this opportunity to, you know, put this message out. And I would also like to pay tribute, according to the tradition, to the people who taught me. And I'm speaking, you know, specifically, you know, all the authors that I reference in the book are... Um, they are acknowledged in more than the traditional way. But I want to pay specific tribute to the people who are not writers in the written form who've contributed. And I'm specifically talking about the fakir and about nature. You know, my apprenticeship to nature over the past two decades has been totally transforming and has enabled me to feel into what the true feminine is. We haven't been able to go into detail about that, but that's a huge topic we may want to revisit if ever we have time one day. But then the fakir who really gave me these tenets. And, you know, I took it kind of as a joke when they said, you know, you're going to put this out into the world. Um, you know, I thought when I wrote my thesis for my PhD that I'd done that job. And I realized that the job was not done. It's with this book that I'm beginning to fulfill that mission that they entrusted to me. And now that they, I mean, 
during the period that I was, the decade that I was involved with them, I saw the beauty of them, and then I saw their downfall once they fell under the god of money in particular. And I can't tell you the grieving. You know, it took me another decade of grieving. The loss of that culture that had adopted me taught me the fundamentals of the natural human esoteric power. And I saw them, I saw them falling apart. I did projects with them to try and hold it together again. It didn't work. And so I had to eventually leave India because either was either I was just going to die of of despair. I was becoming extremely skinny. It was becoming dangerous. I knew I was going to die if I stayed there for no purpose at all. And I figured, okay, I have to go and find another place and come alive again. And so I rebuilt myself in Thailand. And now all of the things that they have taught me have come alive precisely in this phase of the end game of the gods. And, you know, so the, the, I need to pay tribute to them as my kind of collective traditional guru. I did not have a particular guru. Um, I had deep friends with whom we had very, very deep conversations and very deep. Oh, I can't describe it. Okay. But basically, you know, there is the collective guru of the fakir spirit to which as a disciple, it is, you know, my humble pleasure and duty to pay tribute at this point because without them what we have had by way of conversations and what has happened in that book would not have happened well i'm really grateful for everything and your commitment to sharing and i'm confident that our series of podcasts together is going to open doors for many more podcasts and once the part one airs, I am going to share it with a lot of my podcast buddies because I have lots of friends in the podcast world that are very interested in, in deep truth and, and you know, honest questioning of beliefs. So I think this is just the beginning. And, uh, and I'm very grateful that, that you committed the time to share with me and my audience. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed the journey and the dialogue and the exploration and and, and hopefully the awakening for, for everybody. And, you know, I would say if there's a parting comment I have, I would say if, if anything that we said, Anna or I, upset you, I would say that's exactly where you should question your own beliefs and our beliefs with the question, is it really true? And go look for yourself. Anna's book is loaded with references that you can actually start studying this stuff yourself, but be careful not to let your rejection of concepts or ideas just shut your mind down, or that's a real indication that you're suffering from brainwashing and you're not open to truth, and that is a guarantee to have a bumpy road for the rest of your life. So I just want to say I love all of you. I'm grateful that you're with me and Enna, and thank you to the sponsors of the podcast for your love and your support and your commitment to making the world a better place and making great products. And thank you all for buying things from the podcast to support the podcast. And thank you for sharing the podcast. And I look forward to sharing more with you. And I'm quite confident I will have Anna back in the future because we can discuss the divine feminine or the feminine 
as it relates to to everyday life and and uh, I think that's a really important concept today and uh, and a tr- tremendous love and respect for you and your commitment and all your work and your scholarship and your you know everything you've done to spend so much time with the peasants and the the people that have that grassroots spirituality and all your practices and it's just lovely to talk to somebody that's really alive and really passionate and really cares enough about people to I know how hard it is to write a book like that. That's a lot of work. I I'm on my 12th book and boy I'll tell you it's a sort of an interesting experience when it comes time to write a book it's like okay here we go again. It's a lot of long days and a lot of hard work, but at the same time it's here we go again. I've got to share this with the world because the weight of this knowledge will kill me if I don't pass it on. So um, I just want to say thank you for your, your commitment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, all everybody, I'll audience. close with a prayer. Yes, thank you. We are safe. We are whole. We are whole. Aho, great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. See you next time. Lots of love. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Enna Reitort. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. For a printed copy of Enna's book, Creevda, God Tricks Against the Matrix, go to bit.ly forward slash get Enna's book. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash G-E-T-E-N-N-A-S-B-O-O-K, all lowercase. For the ebook version, go to bit.ly forward slash Kreevda the God Tricks. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash K-R-I-V-D-A-T-H-E-G-O-D-T-R-I-X. To listen to more of the conversation between Paul and Enna, you can find the following episodes. Number 173, on the etymology of root words used in sacred scriptures, where Enna shares essential meanings of the words that most people are unaware of, and therefore are unaware of what they create through the unconscious use of such words. Also episode 174, where Enna shares deep research into who Jesus really was as a humanitarian, and where she unveils the many tools of manipulation that the priest class used and continues to use to keep human beings under their control and poor. And finally, episode 178, where Paul and Enna talk about the sacrifice of earth and humanity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Follow Paul Check on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Music